The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. Morning and welcome to our continuing Bible study for the Biblical Foundations Bible Study. I'm Chris Martin. I'm so glad you're with us today as we continue our study in the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul. I've got a slightly different background today because for whatever reason I couldn't get uh, the right kind of Wi-Fi connection in my office, and so I was having some audio problems, uh, video problems syncing with the audio. And uh, but I moved to my dining room, and it seems to be working fine. So I'm going to try to record here. We're going to try to have a good Bible study lesson. Hope everyone's doing well today. I uh, want to say a happy anniversary to my parents who this weekend uh, celebrate their 57th wedding anniversary. So I want to thank uh, my mom and dad for their uh, commitment uh, to each other and to our family over the last uh, 57 years and uh, the legacy that they've provided. So uh, happy anniversary to them. And uh, welcome to all of you. Hope you're having a wonderful weekend, uh, despite the weirdness going on uh, culturally and medically. And uh, hopefully today we can have a lesson that will uh, get us in the right frame of mind for the week that we have coming up. And I really appreciate you being here. Uh, in our study of Second Timothy, we've looked over the last two weeks at some topics on spiritual gifts. And this morning we're going to tackle the subject of battling battle fatigue. And I'm going to talk about why I've picked that particular topic and you'll see how the text uh, fits with that particular topic as we go into it. But I first of all, I want to set the stage for how we got here last week. Coming out of chapter 1, where we saw a diagnostic on the use of our spiritual gifts, last week we looked at motivation for how we employ our spiritual gifts. And as a reminder, Timothy or Paul told Timothy to start with the idea of be strong. We picked it up in verse 1 of chapter 2, where he says, Live your life empowered by God's free-flowing grace. You remember last week we talked about how it's not just our salvation that grace provides, but giving us the gifts that we don't deserve, giving us the opportunities we don't deserve, giving us the knowledge and the insight on how to use our gifts that we don't deserve. And so it all starts with being strong, not in ourselves, but in him, having his grace give us the gifts, the opportunities, the means to use them, the methods to use them. And that was the key, as we talked about last week in starting chapter two, is the transition point out of chapter one. We also looked at the second idea of replicating uh, our spiritual gifts, replicating our faith through the use of our spiritual gifts. And I gave you the word disseminate as our second key term, and that picked up on verse two, uh, where Paul encouraged Timothy to entrust his message or his use of gifts to the other faithful men around him who would be able to teach others also. We talked about this idea of replicating the benefits of our spiritual gifts where uh, Paul shares with Timothy, Timothy shares with other faithful men, and then they share with other faithful people under them as well. So it's the same idea of us with discipleship or helping other people to motivate them to go out and use what God's given them to share with other people, to help other people, and to do what God wants us to do. We saw last week three illustrations to motivate us, the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer, and it gives us some insight this week into some points we'll have, and I'll apply that going forward. 
In chapter seven, or sorry, in verse seven of chapter two, we talked last week in our conclusion about uh, the Lord will give you understanding in these things. Because as we finish any discussion of what does God want me to do, we struggle with this idea of what's next. Where do I go? What do I do? Who do I help? Uh, who do I share with? And Paul's conclusion to Timothy was just pray about it. Think about these things, reflect on these things, and God will give you the understanding of when and how to use them. And once again, it just ties in with that idea that it's not about us and our creativity and our plan to use what God wants us to do. It's instead focused on letting him be God and us being his instruments. When you go through all those things, you find yourself frequently just fatigued, just mentally, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. Because in this time in life, I think we can all relate to the issue of fatigue. I know it comes to the virus. Uh, my mom, in particular, is particularly fatigued because she's disconnected from Bible study. She's disconnected from her sewing group. She's disconnected from some of her close friends. Uh, and she's even shared with me as recently as last weekend how fatigued she is over this virus. It's uh, equally bad for a lot of us this week as we had to, it seems like, take a couple of steps back this week as the health conditions continue to get bad. And so we find ourselves not having in-person church. Yet again, this Sunday, we find ourselves uh, having to do more restrictive things uh, in work. We find a lot of people out of work. We find financial stress. We find uh, emotional stress with people together, sometimes too much together, uh, and they're starting to wear on each other's nerves, and so there's fatigue there. Uh, but we also encounter spiritual fatigue, and I want to tackle this particularly this morning because uh, any type of emotional or mental fatigue can also exacerbate spiritual fatigue. And that, in my experience, primarily hits us two different ways. Number one, we get tired of being who we are. We get tired of feeling like we take two steps forward in our faith just to take a step backward, or we do something good for God, and then we just totally screw something else up, or we just cannot shake that sin thing that's been plaguing us for so long, and so that leads to one level of spiritual fatigue. We also have spiritual fatigue and frustration over what we want to do, particularly on Sunday mornings, but then as the week wears on, we lose opportunities, we lose, or we feel like we lose opportunities, we lose some incentiveness, uh, incentives to do certain things, we just kind of feel beat up about not being able to do what we think God wants us to do. Or I'm fatigued because God won't open doors and tell me what he wants me to do as fast as I want to hear it. So we find ourselves frustrated at lost opportunities, at people not listening to us, at us not having platforms we wanted, not having opportunities we wanted, uh, frustrated with our own uh, trips in life. And we just find ourselves fatigued. And so it puts us in a great situation this morning to tackle this issue as Paul was dealing with Timothy's fatigue and trying to tell him what to do. Because the way all this plays together is Paul's giving his last will and testament. He's given the final words of advice to Timothy. Timothy is a lot like Titus. He's been there in Ephesus now for a couple of years. And like Titus, he's just frustrated. Culturally, he's beat up. Uh, the Jewish congregation in his city was harassing him. The Greeks and Romans in his city was harassing him. Uh, his congregation was at risk of splintering because different people had different views. And Timothy, just like us in different areas at a different time, also found himself fatigued, just like we find ourselves fatigued. 
Fatigue is different than being tired. Understand what we're talking about here. When you're tired, as I said on the screen, you know that if you just get some sleep, you'll feel better. But fatigue is different than that. It's still there when you wake up. It stays with you all day. It's a lack of energy, a feeling of mental, emotional, and physical exhaustion. That's the difference with just a physical tiredness or a physical fatigue. The type of fatigue we're talking about is emotional from just being worn out with stress, worn out worrying about something. It can be mental from just intensity, just intensity in work or intensity in thought or intensity maybe in fear for you, and that creates fatigue. And then spiritual, as we talked about, frustration with ourselves, frustration with the world around us. It's just not going the way we wanted it to go, and it creates a fatigue. We battle and battle and battle to do better, to push better, to do more, and we just find ourselves frustrated and fatigued. So Paul's going to give us some insight, and our bottom line is where I want to start. Normally, I end here. I want to start here because combating fatigue, mental, emotional, spiritual, requires one of two things, or sometimes both. It requires a change in circumstances that can lessen our fatigue, a change in perspective, how we perceive something, even though it's not going to change, and sometimes both. So our bottom line for today is combating fatigue, biblically, psychologically, mentally, requires a change in circumstances, a change in perspective, or both. So with that background of what our ultimate conclusion is going to be, Paul's going to tell us how to get there. Because the middle part of 2 Timothy chapter 2 gives us the tools to apply what's on the screen. Gives us the tools to apply how to combat fatigue. He starts fascinatingly with the idea of staying focused. And he's going to give this idea a couple of different points, a couple of different uh, manifestations and talking points that I'm going to go through one at a time, and you'll see how this plays out. But he starts with the idea of remembering our Savior and focusing on this issue of remembering our Savior might at first glance seem a little bit superficial, but let me apply the verse and show you how it works. He says, keep your attention on Jesus Christ as arisen from the dead and descended from David. He starts this idea of where we keep our attention, keeping on Christ. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, this seems painfully elementary, but it's really not. Because the question is, for all of us, what centers you? And for most of us, the older we get in our Christian faith, we find ourselves giving lip service to what centers us in biblically and spiritually, but in other things of life, we actually can look and see evidence of being centered on other things. For a lot of men, uh, we center ourselves frequently on our jobs. It's what we spend the most uh, hours in the week doing. It's what we spend the most uh, amount of time working on. And it is a situation where uh, we can find ourselves with uh, a lot of our emotional, physical, and mental energy focused on our work. And so for a lot of us, work centers us. Uh, for myself, uh, I'll candidly confess that I personally believe that I'm centered around my wife. Uh, I find uh, uh, I'm thinking about her all the time. I'm making plans what we can do together. I'm trying to do what I have to do at work so we can do certain things in the evenings or on the weekends together. Uh, if I find myself pulled away at work or pulled away for something else I'm doing, like teaching, uh, I feel guilty because I can't do more things for her. And just all kinds of different ways in life with mental energy and emotional energy, uh, I find myself focusing on my wife. And if you ask me, I would say that's what uh, my life is centered around. 
Uh, and none of those things are bad. I know for a lot of women, for example, they would say their life centers around their kids or their grandkids. They spend a lot of time with them. They spend a lot of time focusing on them. And whether it's job, spouse, kids, projects, whatever it is that seems to occupy your mental and emotional energy, those are not bad in and of themselves. Because we talked about last week with the distractions and the busyness that Satan can give us. That we end up doing is we end up putting Christ on the side of or sometimes below those other things that center us because we rationalize I can still work and still be a good Christian. I can still be a spouse and still be a good Christian. But we don't do the exact opposite, which is make Christ the center and have our work come off of that, our spouse come off of that, our children come off of that. And as a result, that uh, centric nature that we have. Uh, focuses on things other than Christ. And it's just the reality of our sin nature. It pulls us away to those things that aren't God. And so our emotional energy, our mental energy, focus on all these other things. And we'll grab God like a life preserver, but we're not Jesus-centric. We actually see this throughout all of Scripture. One of the reasons I'm convinced that the Old Testament has remained in our Bible is not only telling us about Christ, the reason why we studied the Scarlet Thread two years ago, but it gives us illustrations of people that forgot to be God-centric. From Genesis all the way through the end of the Old Testament, over and over and over again, we see illustrations of people uh, individuals, uh, groups of people, leadership, followers, you name it, it runs the spectrum from the mundane to the political leaders of the day to the religious leaders of the day. From time to time, they forgot to be God-centered. And so the consequences are all through the Old Testament. There's inevitable uh, consequences personally, consequences politically, consequences culturally, and all kinds of disasters recorded in the Old Testament because they forgot to be God-centric. In our world, the challenge is can we remain Jesus-centric? Can we think about him as we're working? Can we talk to him as we're working, as we're dealing with our spouses, as we're dealing with our kids? Can we really say, I've got a life that is Jesus-centric? That's not, for example, opening your Bibles only on Sundays. That's not, for example, only praying at meals. That's not, for example, only crying help when we find out we can't do it ourselves. A Jesus-centric life is a life that uh, prioritizes him to the same degree all of those other things in our life seem to prioritize us. For work, that uh, obsession or constant feeling of I'm behind we ought to feel the same sense of urgency if I'm behind in my quiet time, I'm behind in my prayer time. That desire that we have to be with a spouse or to be with kids or to be with grandkids or to be with close friends ought to be the same kind of desire that drives us to be Jesus-centric. So if you're like me and you find yourself sometimes pulled away to those other things in life which are not bad, but you find yourself not being Jesus-centric, once again, it's not a matter of will. It's a matter of time. It's a matter of doing those things that draw us closer to him and him to us, at least how it, terms, how it feels to us. And we've got to make a concerted effort to be Jesus-centric because part of the way that he's going to balance the fatigue is going to remind us that we can't on our own do it. We've got to get our rest in him. We have to get our strength in him. 
So if we're going to do anything other than pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, we've got to start by being Jesus-centric. So it's fascinating that he starts there. He also says in, in, in verse 8, he talks about keeping our attention on Jesus Christ as risen from the dead. What does that mean? It's trying to capture the idea that when you are fatigued, the person that we're supposed to draw close to is we want to become more Jesus-centric is the creator of the universe with all the power that physics can measure in his fingertips. And so for those of us that find ourselves just completely fatigued, frustrated, want out of a situation, want a situation to change, want a different perspective on the situation, Paul is telling Timothy here and telling us if we keep our attention focused on him, not as a person, but in part also as the person who is responsible for creating the universe with all the power humanity can contemplate that is so great that it is the power that caused him to be risen from the dead. Great little point to remember. When your tank is empty, remember so is his tomb. If he's got the power to have life over death, then he's got the power to give you some extra fuel in your tank when you are so fatigued and frustrated you don't think you can go forward anymore. But also notice what he wraps up here at the end of verse 8. He also not only says, uh, focus our attention on Jesus Christ as risen from the dead, and descended from David. Now, why is that a big deal? We, we know genealogically, but he is, what's he trying to say? He's trying to say in shorthand, God's promises have always been true and always will be true. So it's not only the power greater than any aspect of physics can measure, it's power controlled by promise that's always focused on God's will and our role in God's will. It's all an issue of understanding God's promises. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of God's promises in the Bible. Actually, probably thousands. I couldn't even count them all. Different people have different ideas as to what all the promises are. There are clearly some promises not for me and you. The promises to Abraham in his covenant. The promise to David in his covenant. All of those types of promises are for other people. They're not for us. There's also some parts of the Bible that are just statements. It doesn't say this is God's promise, but it's just a statement and people try to draw promises out of it. But there are very clear promises. I've got seven on the screen where God says he is our strength. He will never leave us. He has plans for us. He hears our prayers. He'll fight for us. He gives us peace and he will always love us. Each of those are critical for us to understand that that's just an illustration of all of God's promises. And so if we're frustrated and fatigued at the battle circumstances we're in, battling with ourselves, battling with the circumstances we're living in, with the virus, with economic problems, with unemployment going around, uh, with just all kinds of frustration with relationships and circumstances, we've got to remember not only the person of Jesus Christ and being Jesus-centered, not only the power over death itself, certainly over all of our problems, but the promises that are so multifaceted they deal with all the aspects of our life that we find ourselves frustrated in. Great little cross-reference in the Old Testament, Isaiah 46, 11, he says, what I've said, that I will bring about, what I have planned, that I will do. New Testament perspective, let us hold tightly 
without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promises, Hebrews 10, 23. Old Testament, New Testament perspective on the exact same thing. So we start by being Jesus-centric, realizing his power, realizing his promises. That's going to start me on the path of dealing with the circumstances that I'm so frustrated with. Because if i got to change circumstances or perspective, it's fascinating. Paul says we're going to start with the circumstances. You can't change your circumstances, but the power of God that is so powerful, it creates life over death and promises that can never be altered. That can change any circumstance. We just have to let God have the opportunity to change circumstance in his timing. Second point, he says, remember God's word. He starts by remembering the person of Christ. And he says, number two, remember God's word. He gets us this in verse nine. He says, I suffer for the gospel to the point of being bound like a criminal but God's message is not bound. Now, he's writing, obviously, from prison. It's not the house arrest we saw from the earlier prison epistles. It's the a jail, most likely the, uh, uh, the guards' jail uh, of those guards that guarded Caesar. But uh, it was in, in, in chains. Uh, it was a struggle to write. He would have had to rely on other people to bring him clothing and food and the basic necessities of life. But the point here is despite being stuck in a jail, despite being literally shackled at the hands and his feet, even in Paul's life, God's word was not slowed down. Just like in our life, even when we're shackled by circumstances, we're shackled by experiences, we're shackled by other people's choices sometimes, God's word will not be slowed down and it will not be thwarted. God's word is not chained, or some of your translations might say is imprisoned. And it's just Paul simply saying, if he can't put me in prison, and or if I could be in prison, he can't slow down his word. He's saying for us, we can't be imprisoned by circumstances or our own sin or anything else and his word be slowed down. So it's just a recognition. Remember his word because when we feel imprisoned, when we feel in chains of circumstances or the virus or our own poor health uh, or our own economic circumstances or whatever we're dealing with, it says his word is not chained. It is not imprisoned. So you may feel imprisoned that's causing your fatigue. His word never is. He then continues and says, remember the field. And this is my way of describing the mission field, or those we're supposed to be using our spiritual gifts on. Paul says, this is why I endure all of these things for the elect, so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. What he's saying here is for the use of Paul's spiritual gift. He remembers that it's not about him, it's about other people. And just like with him, with us, our spiritual gifts, not about ourselves, it's about helping someone else. For a lot of us, it's helping or encouraging other Christians. For some of us, our spiritual gift is helping and encouraging and leading to Christ non-believers. Your spiritual gift manifests in different ways, but the point is, because it's for someone else, don't forget the field. Don't forget those that God wants us to help harvest what he has planted. So if he has planted opportunities, if he's planted curiosity, if he's planted certain needs, it's just simply a recognition that we have got to be 
stewards of the field using the opportunities that he's given us. So a cross-reference in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, Christ said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Cross-reference on our verse is basically recognizing there's a massive harvest out there that God has planted. The question is, what are we going to do to be obedient, to be able to work in that field? Because some of us are doing the equivalent of watering his harvest. Some of us are doing the equivalent of helping mature his harvest. Some of us are doing the equivalent of helping encourage the harvest or doing all kinds of different things to help being the eyes and ears and hands and mouth of Christ for those people that God has already planted in and is waiting for the harvest to come and waiting for us to be obedient servants. He also tells us, remember, despite all of our frustrations that our future is secure. And here he's starting to switch because you'll notice as he starts by talking about the power to change our circumstances. He starts that in the person of Christ. He can change anything if it's according to his will and his time. But then you notice how he starts to change our perspective. He says, remember, despite your perspective, God's word is true. It's never going to be changed. That's going to help us with our perspective because we're going to focus on what God's word says. He then says, think about other people. He's changing our perspectives from our own pity party to our own fatigued frustration and telling us, think about other people. Then he says, remember your future. Don't get so caught up in your circumstances that we become like a horse with blinders or an animal that can't perceive a future. And instead he's saying, remember, your future is secure. Don't be frustrated and think that your circumstance or somehow God abandoned you. He gets this in verse 12, or verse 11. He says, for if we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. Now here when he talks about if we have died, he's not talking literally. He's using a figure of speech that would have made perfect sense to Timothy, and it does make perfect sense to us if you think about it, by talking about self-sacrifice. I'm dying to sin. I'm making choices to break from my sin nature, to stay Jesus-centric, and to self-sacrifice my pleasure desires, self-sacrifice my time desires, self-sacrifice my emotional reactions, my anger at certain things, or my frustration at certain things. And it's saying, if I self-sacrifice, if I die because of him or with him, I will live with him because I'm sacrificing my sin nature, my sin desire, in order to become more Christ-like. We see this play out in a couple of ways. It's basically surrendered to him, and as a result of surrendering to him, I'm dying to self. So what does that mean? It means I'm surrendering my job to him. I'm surrendering my kids or grandkids, if you have them, to him. I'm surrendering my spouse to him. I can't change any of those things very well on my own. So I surrender to him. I die to self. Now, how does it manifest? I came across this and I thought it was so good. I just had to put it up and talk about it for a second. Dying to self means when you feel forgotten or neglected and you don't hurt with the insult, but your heart is happy, that is dying to self. When your advice is disregarded, your opinions might be ridiculed. You refuse to let anger rise in your heart and take it all in patient, loving silence. That is dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear disorder, irregularity, 
tardiness of other people's, annoyance caused by other people, and you endure it as Jesus endured those things, that's dying to self. When you never care to refer to yourself in conversation or record your own good works or itch for praise from other people after some accomplishment, when you can truly love to be completely unknown, that is dying to self. When you can see your brother or sister in Christ prosper and can honestly rejoice with them and feel no envy, even though your needs feel greater, that's dying to self. When you're content with any food, any offering, any raiment, any climate, any society, even one with a real bad virus, that's dying to self. When you can take correction from someone, when you can humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly, with no rebellion or resentment rising up in your heart, that is dying to self. I showed you this because not only was it helpful for me personally to remind myself of what it means to die to self, to do all of those things is not simply a matter of laying down on the proverbial altar and self-sacrificing. It's basically turning things over to God. I'm going to yield them to you. I'm going to yield my pride to you. I'm going to yield my anger to you. I'm going to yield my reactions to you from certain things in life. And so for a lot of them like myself, and I find myself totally frustrated in a work situation as we struggle with how to deal with this virus and struggle with some economic issues, uh, as I struggle with uh, some personal financial issues, whatever else I'm dealing with, I've got to remember as I yield those things to God, there's an aspect of self-sacrifice that says, I'm going to let go of that. I'm not going to cling to it. I'm not going to obsess about it. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to yield to him. And all those little illustrations we looked at, whether they're insult, whether they're pain, whether they're just being ignored, all those things are wonderful pictures of self-sacrifice so we can live with him. Next point, remember our weaknesses aren't fatal. Our weakness is not fatal. Great little verse here comes from verse 13 where Paul says to Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Now don't misinterpret this. This is not saying when we have a total lack of faith and are not a Christian. That's not what he's saying at all. Remember our context. Our context here is all about spiritual gifts for Paul teaching Timothy, it's how to lead his church. For us, it's application on how we can lead with our spiritual gifts. We're now talking about motivation, how to deal with this frustration and fatigue of mental fatigue, spiritual fatigue, emotional fatigue. And we basically say, I can't do it. I don't know how to do it. I'm struggling just to stay one step ahead of myself. I'm trying just to keep one foot going in front of the other. I'm struggling to get out of bed in the morning. And I believe in God. I believe in Jesus Christ. I just don't know how I'm going to get out of this pit. That's the faithlessness that he's talking about. And he's saying, if I'm not going to have faith, I just have a tiny, tiny bit of faith and I'm just lost in everything else. It says, despite your lack of faith, God remains faithful and he can't deny himself. And he says, he's never going to leave us. He's never going to abandon us. He's never going to stop hearing our prayers. He's never going to stop looking after us on a minute by minute, second by second basis. It says he's always going to be there. Great little illustration. I've used this before. I learned it from my dad when I was a kid. I've seen it in my own life. I'll give it to you in this simple application. I've spent most of my life in Texas. 
when it freezes here in the winter, when I was a kid growing up, we lived next to some pastures that would either have horse cattle tanks uh, or it would have all kinds of different little ponds around, some with fish in them, some without in them. We'd get snow one night or ice overnight and we'd go out there and there'd be a layer of ice It'd be about a millimeter thick. It would just be as small as it could possibly be. And we learned real quick, if you're going to step on that ice, you're going to fall in and get cold. So it came as a total shock when I was a kid and my dad would take us on vacation up to Michigan where he was raised. And you'd see people driving out on the lake or you would see houses out on the lake. I've got a major client up in Minneapolis, and so I frequently have to take trips up there before the virus, uh, and was up there as recently as this past December last year during the polar vortex, you may remember, I had to go up there when it was like 40 below zero, and I'd always drive by these lakes on my way out to their office, and just be amazed at the houses that are out on the lake they built these fishing huts uh, out of, and cars, and trucks, and all kinds of things out on the lake, because they are several feet thick. Now, at one point in time, about two years ago, one of my clients took me out on one of these lakes to see his really high-tech uh, ice fishing house or ice fishing hut that was really, really nice. And I got to tell you, as a Texas boy, I was scared to death to walk on that ice, much less drive on that ice. And it was a great illustration that I've known since my dad taught it to me as a kid. And it was a reminder as I stepped out on that ice, I had no faith whatsoever. But the reminder was not the measure or the amount of my faith. The question is the object of my faith and how strong is it? It does not matter if I've got a thimble full of faith. If the object of my faith is incredibly, unshakably strong. Conversely, I could have all the delusional faith in the world. I could have the greatest faith known to man. And if I step out onto a sheet of ice after one bit of overnight cold in Texas, the amount of my tremendous faith isn't worth anything if the object of my faith is weak and temporal and it's gonna go away as soon as I put some pressure on it. So the great little illustration here is the object of your faith matters more than the amount of your faith. The screen is from Boyd Bailey, former pastor of uh, First Baptist Church Atlanta. He uh, has written a book called Wisdom Hunters, which is where I got the little picture from. But it's a great little reminder, and it parallels this verse in 2 Timothy about our faithlessness and his faith never changing, because it's a recognition that the object of our faith Jesus Christ and his word matters more than the tiny amount in my faith and how he's going to deal with his fatigue, how he's going to get me through the circumstance. So that's our first little point. I've got to keep my focus on him. Second, I've got to stay on the straight path. That's how I got to deal with fatigue. What does that mean? He's going to teach us how to stay on the straight path by first of all, having his focus on the majesty of God's work through us, through you individually. He says in verse 14, keep reminding God's people of these things. What's he saying to Timothy? He's saying these things he just covered. 
being Jesus-centric, remembering his word never fails, his word's not in chains, even though we are, remembering uh, the field, remembering all these things we just talked about. He says, keep remembering those things, because remember the purpose of these things. It's all about using our spiritual gifts. For Timothy, it's about pastoring. For us, it's about using the spiritual gifts he's given us. And he says, as he gets through this, warn them about, uh, warn them before God against quarreling about words. The literal Greek translation here is fascinating because it, it doesn't say quarreling about words. It says, warn them before God against word warring or worry warring over words, going to war over words. Now, he's not talking about non-believers. He's not talking about having a debate with non-believers. He's talking about within the church, within the body of believers, having ridiculous arguments over what somebody thinks is truth and what somebody else thinks is truth. He's saying God's word is true. God is true. There should not be discernment and disagreement among believers. It's one of the reasons why in class I don't allow class debate and I don't allow questions typically as I'm teaching because I don't want people to end up making uh, pontificating speeches and taking positions that I don't know what kind of crazy thing they're going to say. And as a result, we have some people at church, we meet in person, that refuse to come to church because they don't want a class that they go to where they cannot share their opinions on a daily basis or a weekly basis in church. They want to be able to be heard, to share their thoughts on theology, to share their thoughts on whatever, even though for the overwhelming majority of them, they don't have any theological training, they can't read the original Greek, uh, and they've never been to seminary. And so they're just sharing their thoughts from life, and they think they ought to be heard. But it's one of the reasons why uh, in class that I don't allow that to happen because it's typically a distraction. You run the risk of the blind leading the blind, uh, and it detracts from the time we've got available to teach God's truth. And so I don't, I don't allow that to happen. And what you'll discover as you go through this is that you'll discover in many circumstances of church People's sin nature triggers where they want to get in debates. They want to argue about different aspects of theology or different aspects of Bible. And Paul's saying, don't waste time in that. True truth is true truth. And if there's a disagreement and you don't think somebody's preaching true truth, then leave the church. But don't engage in debate and, and find yourself pulling other people around the focus they should be having. He also reminds us to cut a straight path. And this is really the core of verses 14 and 15 on this point of staying on the straight path. Uh, translation, 1 Timothy chapter 15 starts with an interesting treatment. As he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. The old King James the New American Standard, the NIV, all do the basic same translation. They use this concept of correctly handling God's Word. I tried to do some research this week and figure out where this came from, and the best I could come up with is the New Testament took a stab at how to interpret an old Greek word that was really, really unique, and everybody that's followed it said, that's a pretty good interpretation, we're just going to stick with it. But I want to back up a little bit because I think it gives us a little more application if we get a little more central in our word. Our Greek word here that I just highlighted for you, correctly handled, is a verb talking about the word of God. And Paul uses a word that is not used that we can find 
anywhere else in Greek except one place I'm going to tell you about. He uses the word ortho, tomeo. Tomeo means to cut, or tomeos means to cut. If I say cut repeatedly, it's tomeo. I change the very end of the word. Ortho means straight. It's where we get our word orthopodics from, or orthopedics, I should say, an orthopodic product. Uh, orthopedics is to make straight, to make limbs in your body straight. So orthotomeo is to continually cut in a straight line, to continually make straight, to continually cut straight. I told you that in all of our knowledge of Greek literature over the last 2,000 years, historians and grammarologists have not been able to find this word repeated anywhere in Greek literature except one place. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uses this word in Greek translating the Old Hebrew two different times, and here's how we translate it into English. Proverbs 3.36, or sorry, 3.6, Proverbs 3.6. In all of your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Orthotomeo, that's the word right there. He'll make your path straight, and it's this idea of cutting through the mountains, cutting through a valley, cutting through winding rocks. And it says, if you'll acknowledge him, he'll make your paths orthotomeo. He'll make your path straight. Second cross-reference, also in the Proverbs 11.5. The righteousness of the blameless makes a straight way for them, an orthotomeo for them. But the wicked are brought down by their own wickedness. Once again, an idea of a straight path through. That's the point. That's the literal translation of 2 Timothy 2.15. So to give the transliterated interpretation of that, it's do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be shamed, and who cuts a straight path with the word of truth. Notice the difference. It's not an issue of correct handling so that I can teach it to somebody. Well, that's not a bad interpretation. But the application for us is not just to be able to correctly handle God's word, it's to do something with it. It's just like it uses in Proverbs to the path I'm going to take in life to make it straight. Because if I make my own choice in life, I'm going to get distracted off here off some uh, jaunt for entertainment. I'm going to get pulled off in this direction for a jaunt on uh, a way to spend my money. I'm going to get pulled off here in a jaunt on doing something else. And this is saying God's got a path for me. God's got a plan for me. God's word has got what we would call in the corporate world today best practices, a way to avoid heartache, a way to avoid frustration, a way to avoid anxiety. And it says, do your best to be a man or woman who's approved. In other words, God says, well done, good and faithful servant for using your spiritual gifts. Who doesn't need to be ashamed because they trip up or they go slow, but it's a person who cuts a straight path with the word of truth, with God's word in their heart, saying, I'm not going to be distracted over here. I'm not going to be pulled away. I'm not going to waste my time doing this. I'm going to have it focused straight ahead on life. Uh, so we got to cut a straight path. That's the plan. So I've got my focus on him. I've got my focus on all the different attributes of him. I've got my 
focus on staying on the straight path. His final point is staying true. We've talked about this repeatedly, this idea of truth that comes through Paul's writings all the time. He said in verse 16, avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Uh, literally, that's the uh, Greek word he uses. It's our transliteration of gangrene, uh, which is to contaminate. Now, most of us don't deal with gangrene because we have antibiotics. In fact, most of you have probably never seen it unless you've been to medical school or you've studied it from something you're working on. Uh, but a great uh, uh, application for us would be cancer, which we've all dealt with and we've all seen because it's saying that godless chatter spreads like cancer. Now, what's this talking about? The, the actual uh, Greek phrase here is no God talk. It'd literally be no hyphen God talk or godless talk. It doesn't mean blasphemy. It doesn't mean disputing God's word. It means chattering, talking a bunch about things that have absolutely nothing to do with God. It's the person that finds themselves incapable of having large, lengthy conversations about a subject other than whatever they like to talk about. For guys, sometimes it's sports. They can talk about sports all day long, get them another topic, and they're out of words after one sentence. For some guys, uh, particularly some older guys, it's the weather. They just love to talk about the weather. For some people, it's themselves. For some people, it's their job. For some people, it's their kids or grandkids. They can talk about that for hours, but they can't talk about other subjects for more than one sentence. It's saying if you find yourself prone to have no God talk, talk about all these other things, be careful. It doesn't say avoid it. It doesn't say, you know, be, be a monk and just talk about God all the time. It's saying be careful because if all of your conversation has nothing to do with God, that's going to spread like cancer through every other aspect of your life. And you find yourself fatigued. You find yourself frustrated because your heart goes where your mouth goes. Your mind goes where your mouth goes. So if you find yourself engaged in a whole bunch of talk that has absolutely nothing to do with God, be careful because that will spread to all the other aspects of life. He then continues in his next little point, and he says in verse 19, nevertheless, in other words, despite this, God's solid foundation stands firm. He uses a word picture here of the foundation of a building. We can all picture what our houses look like, what big commercial buildings look like with a solid foundation. You've probably seen them when they build a house, or when they built your house, or you see when a building goes up and how deep they go with the things they build. He said that type of foundation underlies everything we talk about, and it's got two seals on it, two imprints within the foundation. The first one says in the foundation, the Lord knows those who are his. This is his, one of his final points on how we deal with fatigue because it says as you're doing, you're trying to keep the straight path, you're trying to stay Jesus-centric, it says you may think he's forgotten you because you're battle fatigued. He has not forgotten who you are. He knows you're fatigued. He knows you're frustrated. He hears your prayers. Your timing's just different than his. So it says the foundation that his whole truth is built on underlies all these truths with the realization he knows exactly where you are, he knows exactly what your fatigue is, he knows exactly what your frustration is.
And then he continues and he says, the other side of the foundation has another stamp on it that says, everyone who confesses his name must turn away from wickedness. In other words, it's saying if he's going to call us, if he's going to, be, if he's going to redeem us, then we ought to be different. People ought to be able to look at us and say, they don't talk like us. They don't have the same frustrations we do, or if they do, they don't show it. They've got a peace that we don't have. They've got a joy that we don't have. And he's saying God's foundation is built on us, not being legalistic and jumping through a bunch of hoops, but just being his, being different as we become more Christ-like with the peace of knowing he knows us who are his. So those are his points. That's how he ties up to this issue that he ends on and reminds us the bottom line for combating fatigue is it requires a change of circumstances, which he's got the power to do because he's got the power over death, which he's got the power to do because his word is premised on his promises. I just have to know them and understand them. They're never going to change. It requires a change in perspective, which is not to have a pity party about the fatigue that I'm under, the mental stress I'm under, the emotional stress I'm under, the spiritual strain I'm under. And for most of us, it requires both. It requires a change in perspective until his timing is going to change my circumstances. Because usually if I'm going to change my circumstances, I'm just going to screw it up. Because who's to say my circumstances aren't exactly where he wants me? Because he wants me to learn something. He wants me to be more relatable to someone in the exact same situation so that I can encourage them. Maybe it's the consequence of my sin in certain circumstances or the consequence of someone else's sin. He's trying to teach us those things so that we can be better equipped to use our spiritual gifts. I'll end on this in the last bit of time we have. Great little quote from Chuck Swindoll that I was reminded of this week as I was getting ready for this lesson on this issue of uh, frustration and being exhausted and being fatigued. Chuck says, in place of our exhaustion and spiritual fatigue, God will give us rest. All he asks is that we come to him, that we spend a while thinking about him, meditating on him, talking to him, listening in silence, occupying ourselves with him, totally and thoroughly lost in the hiding place of his presence. That encouraged me. I hope that encouraged you as you think about your fatigue this week, as you think about your frustration. It's not a matter of you needing more sleep. Sleep does not conquer fatigue. But I hope this lesson, the points we covered, will be of an encouragement to you. We'll give you some tools to apply Monday through Saturday in dealing with your fatigue. And hopefully it gives you some encouragement because we've all got fatigue. We're all beat up. We're all sick of the virus. We're all sick of the economic stress. We're all sick of all the relational stress and everything that the world is experiencing right now. And through that fatigue, just remember, we've got a plan. We've got a God who loves us and who cares about us. And we've got a means to get through it through his power, through his knowledge, through his discernment, and through his will. It just keeps getting better next week. He's taking these ideas and diving even a little bit deeper through the end of chapter two next week and the start of chapter three. Hope you'll join me. It's going to be a great study. Close with me in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to come and study your word. When we are fatigued, we pray that right now, 
later this week, later this month, that you would bring this message back to us, that these simple truths from 1 Timothy chapter 2 would give us strength through you, would give us peace through you, it would give us a transformed perspective through you, and if your will calls for it, transformed circumstances through you. It's outside of our power. It's outside of our control. We just simply yield it all to you, and we thank you for loving us, for your promises to us, and for your encouragement through messages like this and through words like this. We thank you for all these things. Lead us and guide us as always till we're back together again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you next week. We will be here even though it's a holiday weekend, so look forward to joining us next week as we continue our study in the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul. Thanks so much. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved. Thank you.